We're going to get into the beautiful book of Acts. We are in chapter 27. Do you realize that means we're one chapter away from finishing this book, but we're in no hurry. I think about what it's like when the book of Acts took place, especially when we look at things that people crave like the uh, Acts chapter 2 where we see so much of um, this beautiful outpouring of God's Spirit, but more importantly even than just that is 3,000 people being delivered out of hell and how what it would have sounded like to hear these people praise God in these languages And then I think about our fellowship, and I just think there's just going to be a time. You know when people talk about speaking in a tongue, and certainly there's a gift of it, but certainly as well, just hearing people praise God in their native tongues is such a beautiful thing to me. We're going to have one of those moments where people can just praise God and then interpret. So you go, wow, somebody just praised God in Turkish or in French or in Ugali or whatever it would be. So we are in chapter 27. Again, if you have your Bibles, please. We pick it up in verse 15, but we'll pick it up in verse 13 for context. Um, we're not going to go through the rest of the chapter unless God does something really ridiculous tonight. I mean, He's going to do some beautiful things in our text, and I don't want us to lose the forest and the trees tonight, but I really do want us to see something that God really has hand-selected, I believe, specifically for this evening, and for you who are brave enough to, to take a night like this where it's somewhere between snowing and raining, sort of snaining outside. Um, and, uh, and, and so here, read with me if you would, please. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close to Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. And when the ship was caught, it could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest beat on us. All hope that we should be saved was finally given up. But long after a long abstinence from food, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Why Wouldn't that be welcome information to hear at a moment like that? And have not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. But now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Take a moment to do this. Go find a person that you don't know, of the same gender, please, and pray that God would speak to them. So go ahead and do it. Go be family. Go do that. You're brand new here. Ha ha ha. As we take this moment to pray... We want to lift up Landon, and I want to do that right now. As we lift up those of you who are familiar, and I'm sorry to cut you off, I don't want to keep you from praying, and I certainly don't want to stop you from praying. Um, those of you familiar with our other worship leader, Landon, and his wife are in Cyprus right now. So we, let's lift them up in prayer as well. Would you do that with me? Lord, I just want to thank you for the privilege of our family here, for the blessing of being here in this beautiful building, granted cold, but not remotely as cold as it is outside. 
And I just pray you would warm our hearts. Keep us warm, Lord. And I pray that we could genuinely, really, really be driven into your word, be totally ministered to, right where we need to be ministered to. And God, I pray tonight you would overwhelm us with your goodness by the power of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and really minister more than just something we can lock into theory, God, but really into the practice of our lives. And I commit this to you. God, fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Immerse me, God, that I would disappear and that you would appear and your Holy Spirit would shine through me so clearly, God, that you would be exalted. So I pray for that fresh anointing and I pray that tonight would be a glorious, beautiful night. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one last thing. Um, I bring extras because I'm kind of like this. So this isn't like any of us are going steady. But does anyone need like an extra jacket just to wrap around them? I realize it is no, a little colder than normal here. So if, if so, then just know that there is um, a couple jackets here you can, uh, and a jumper, lovely jumper. So look at that. See? She wasn't too shy. Um, I just want you to know that because I, I don't want you freezing. Okay. Now, follow me on this. It is roughly 50 A.D., we are now on a ship. We are on a cargo ship. We have left a very important part, port in Turkey on our way to Rome. Two years prior to this, this apostle, this evangelist, this church planner we know as Paul was promised by Jesus that he would get to Rome. But things are looking a little less likely, but his promise is still going to come to pass. Now, the issue isn't at this point then if it's going to happen, more so when and how. The how is a little rougher than any of us would volunteer for. And, and, and it became where we sort of, we docked at a place called Fair Havens, a beautiful place in the sense that who wouldn't want to dock and spend a winter at a place called Fair Havens versus like rough waters, the windy city, whatever it is. Fair Haven sounds like a place you could retire and play golf and wear white trousers. So this sounds like a very nice place to be in the winter until things warm up and you can sail again. We're in late October at this point. Things aren't really not the time to sail. And Paul gives that information. Oh, and let me say, before I even go any farther, please never just believe me because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority from which you test all things to be true or false. Now, if I say that about myself, you can bet I'm going to say it about everything and everyone. But the good news is that book in your hand should be able to sniff out a phony, to test out a goofy, wacky thing, to be able to flush out a heretic, and to be able to lead you in God's truth. Now, Follow me on this. Here we are. We're in Fair Havens now. We're in the south of Turkey. We're visiting Dalek back where she came from 2,000 years ago. And, and with that, needless to say, Paul stands up and he's, well, it's needed to be said. Paul stands up and goes, I really don't think it's a great idea that we leave here. And what we looked at last week was that the person who was responsible for the ship, and by the way, what we're going to find is the person responsible for 276 people really just isn't governed by Paul's advice, but rather by the other things, the experts, if you remember, by those that were the sailors, and by the, the experiences and the sort of circumstances around us. There were a lot of things that governed us and took us away from that advice. 
And what they didn't know is that they were sailing right into the biggest storm of their lives. The kind of storm where somewhere in the middle of it, you aren't just battling or doubting, but convinced you're going to die. You are not going to make it out of this. And what I find interesting is this situation is not at Paul's disobedience. And please hear me in this. God is not, every time you find yourself in a trial, it isn't God spanking you. Now there will be times. But God will, will take you to the woodshed, if you'll pardon me for saying it that way, because he loves you enough to correct your behavior. And there are some guys, for whatever reason, it seems like, you know, there are guys that seems like they can do a thousand things and nobody sniffs anything about it, but one guy, you do something and you're like, immediately you're caught. Well, praise the Lord. You might not think so at the moment, but it says the Lord chastises those he loves. Man, if you haven't gotten spanked at least once, you might want to check your parentage. Now, I'm not saying go sin to find that out. Don't worry, God has it. But see, I know this about the Lord. If he can steer you with a feather, he'll never use a sledgehammer. And so if God can steer you with a whisper, it's a good idea. But when God has to shout, it just doesn't get pretty. May we never be in the place where God has to shout. But understand, just because you're in a trial does not mean God's punishing you. There will be those moments. But God does other things in the trials as well. He purifies. He prepares. And here we're going to see a bit of both of those. But what we see, and what we're going to see in these few short verses, are six things that happen in the midst of a storm like this. Those songs we sang tonight, some of those, like the song Rain on Me, for instance, or the song Be My Refuge, come straight from this text and this situation with David. I mean, it was going through these texts where I'm like, God, I can see this situation. And whether you like it or not, and I'm not here to be pessimistic, I'm here to be optimistic, God in his love for you is going to put you in storms. And the thing is, is we could, you know, there'll be those that will say, look it, if God really loved you, like, can I say it this way? If God really loved you, he would not leave you who you are. And for some, it is required, for all of us, it is required at times for God to put us in situations that will really change us. And it will flush out, to be honest, some of the things we trust which we shouldn't be. In this particular text, we're going to see six responses in order to what happens in a trial. And my, my question, my challenge to you is, take a look at them in your own life and, say, and ask, how about these things in my life? Is this what I do? Because if I look at this in its simplest sense, this is for anyone. The difference between this text and in, in regards to the unbeliever, and the believer is where it ends up. On both sides of it, I guarantee you, it will end up with surrender. However, the issue is who or to what you surrender. Now look at it with me. It tells us this starting in verse 15. Remember, in verses 13 and 14, we saw a gentle southern wind. Those bad winds are going to come from the northwest and blow southeast. A south gentle wind. Think about it. I mean, now you're blowing up from Africa 
tends to be a warmer, gentler wind. Unless you're in the middle of Africa, then it can be a little bit dangerous. But in the northern area, it's nice. It's blowing on the Mediterranean. It's the kind of wind that creates something you can't even surf in Turkey. And so it's gentle and it's warm. And they kind of look and say, that's what we're looking for. Here's our moment. Let's go. We get onto the ship. It's a cargo ship. Remember, the Roman soldier, a centurion, has the right to demand carriage for him and his parcel, which happens to be, at least at this point, a group of people that are going to trial. And, and, and with that now, we get out there and we get, we get smack dab right into this thing called the Euroclidon or the Southeasterner. And now all of a sudden we realize we are in the bad storm. And this is what it says now in verse 15. So when the ship was caught, we could not head into the wind, we let her drive. In the first of our six things, and it tends to be the case, is quite simply, ride it out. You know, it's really not considered that big of a thing. I tell myself it's not that big of a thing at this point. Most people may not even see the storm at the moment like this in my life. So I'm just going to kind of, really, it's not that big of a deal. So I'm just going to kind of let's see how it plays out. Interesting, because when the Lord brings us into storms, and by the way, in this situation, the Lord is bringing us into this storm. We see another one of those with the disciples who again in obedience get into the ship. Jesus had just fed 5,000 and he tells his boys, head into the ship, head to the other side, I'll see you there. Now the other side they hadn't gone to, that's the side where the spooky Greek people are and all that. You know, and so we're a little nervous about that, but they in obedience do and find themselves in the middle of a storm. And it's interesting that they had been in two different times we're going to see storms like that with Jesus. And in both cases, the, it isn't that Jesus is the first thing they turn to. Now, in the first case, Jesus is actually in the boat. You can't not find him. We even read that he's asleep. And now, regardless of where you want to take that, the easiest thing I could say is that he's not moving, so he's easy to find. But they don't even bother him until they think they're going to die. He'll stand up with a single word, calm the storm, put the boat on the shore, and then turn to his disciples. And by the way, can I just say, Jesus is in the business of rescuing and then rebuking. I'm very thankful, for, by the way, for that. Because if he rebuked first, we'd probably die. So with that, he kind of pulls, and then he listens and goes, where is your face? My faith was in the fishermen. There were four of those guys. They knew how to handle the storm until it got bigger until it got to where they said we're going to die. And when fishermen on their boat in their sea say, we're going to die, you kind of take them seriously. And there we go with the experts again. But in the beginning, we kind of get something. And you know, it's kind of it's a little thing. It's, it's really not porn. It's just kind of, it's really not drunkenness. It's just a little, you know, it's really not bitterness or unforgiveness. It's just a little friction. And in the end, we just kind of write it out. I'm just going to write it out. You know, it'll probably, if I ignore it, it'll probably go away like my teeth. Verse 16 tells us our second step. And can I honestly just say, I've been guilty about all of these. Verse 16, it says, and running under the shelter of an island called Claudia, or Clauda, we secured the, stiff, the skiff with difficulty. 
Now, if the first thing we do is write it out, perhaps the second thing we do is tuck it under. When we try to write it out, it really doesn't seem like much of a threat. It may not even seem like much of a storm, although God says this storm was a bad one from the beginning. But now we get to the point where now we're going to try to see if we can kind of get underneath a couple things. And this becomes a real natural thing. This is what Adam and Eve did after sinning, if you think about it, where they started to grab fig leaves. And there's a bit of humor in that. How many of you are familiar with fig leaves? Well, then you might not know. They are horribly itchy. There's a lot of leaves to get. But grabbing the itchy leaves to make underwear, not a good thing. And you can almost see God's mercy and going, what are you guys doing? And they're like, nothing, nothing. Well, I heard you walking in the cool of the garden, so I hid myself. Now, at this point, we start to have to tell other people because at this point now, to tuck it under, we have to kind of hide it. What I find beautiful is that the island they pick. Now, understand, even just in that little area on the western coast of Turkey through to the area of Greece, there are over 5,000 islands in that area alone. There are over 25,000 islands that we're going to run through this. So there's a whole lot of islands they could have picked. But I love the fact they picked the one that was called Clauda. Why is that important? Because Clauda is the word translated lame. And I do love that. Because to be honest, when you start trying to tuck it over under, can I just say, you're being lame. And maybe this is what we could do at a moment like this. We'll go and say, but you don't understand. I was born this way. You don't understand. I am naturally given over to this. You know, it was what my teacher did when I was in year four and how they were nasty to me. So now I have a right to be nasty to people. Well, you know, my dad was an alcoholic, so why would I just get drunk? And at that point, we say, it's really not that big of a deal. We're used to this, and we're trying to tuck the whole thing under. We tuck it under so that somehow people don't see, but you can't get too much under the rug before it becomes a lump. Does that make any sense? Now here, can I just say, out of love for you, and, by the way, out of love for me, because I do love me, unfortunately, more than I should, that God really doesn't want us tucking stuff under, because when it does, it festers and then erupts. And when it does, it gets really bad. And this is the way that God says it in Galatians. He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you're going to reap. Imagine if you went out in your back garden and you just threw seeds everywhere, thorn seeds, seeds for something that was just horribly thorny. And then the next year when spring came, all these thorns rose up and you said, I don't get it. The rest of us would look and go, hello, what part don't you get? You've been throwing them there all winter. Strange as it is, we actually look surprised when we've been sowing to the flesh, and then we get some form of harvest. I've learned this, by the way, two very basic points about a harvest. One is you always get what you sow, and the second is you get it with interest. I mean, if you plant some form of peach tree and and the seed actually germinates, you're going to get more than one peach out of the thing when you're done. That's the good news if it's a good plant. Have you ever learned you plant one dandelion and you get like a thousand of them? 
Understand, we wonder why that is. We planted, and we say, it's just, I'm just tucking it under just a little whatever. When nobody else is looking, I'm going to get a little drink. And you know the most amazing thing about this area, beloved, if I can be honest, one of the most dangerous things for a walk with Christ is anonymity. Because if you can become anonymous, you can sin and you have no accountability. No matter who we are, you can always find some place in theory, where nobody knows you, and then you could do something really stupid. But I can, can I just say, I don't know about you, but I don't know how, why, well, I probably know why. The Lord gave me the kind of face, I don't get away with that. If you know those that know me, no matter where I go in the world, someone will come up and say, Pastor Tony, and I just know the Lord's doing it, because he's like, look at you're never anonymous. But see, we can say, well, the Lord's with us at all moments, and you know, it's like, well, he's going to be forgiving and gracious, but God's like, well, why would we want to sin against the one who loves us so much? And when God says, look at it's just a little, have you ever done that? Because you're actually fearful of what the diagnosis would be when you see the symptom? You go, well, it's just a little, but inside you're going, but that could be cancer. Or that could be, but I don't want to think that way, so I'm just going to call it, I'm going to ignore the fact that there is a potential that this could be a whole lot worse. Well, understand, trying to tuck it under like that, it tells us that the Lord, by the way, will bring to light every secret thought within our hearts. You know the most beautiful part about it when God says that in Romans? He doesn't say, and then God's going to say, oh, so how good do you think you are now? It says, listen, listen. It says, then each one's praise will come from God. Is that the strangest thing you ever heard? Because to me, that's up there. The idea that God's actually going to scoop up things you've been hiding, some things that are actually hidden, and God and go, hey, but look at what I found in the midst of it all. This really cool thing. See, God isn't busy trying to find us do really bad things. What sport would that be to God? He, like a loving father, wants to help us, wants to find things that he actually prays about. I think the Lord loves bragging about us in front of Satan, but that's another story. So the first one, so I'm going to ask, this is the part where I make sure you're still alive. The first one is write it out. So here we go, ready for the quiz? What's the first one? Good, seven of you are here. Let's try that again. What's the first one? Beautiful. What's the second? Tuck it under. But notice it says in verse 16, we do more than just run under the shelter of a place called lame. But it says we also secure the skiff. Does anyone know what a skiff is? What is it? Excellent. It's the escape boat. Now understand, where do you keep the escape boat? You keep it on the outside of the boat, hanging on the outside of it. But when the boat's doing this, that thing starts smacking. Why do you secure it? Think about it. You secure it because you think you might need it, but this isn't the place to get in it. Because if I get in that boat right now, I mean, our giant boat that's holding 276 people is being thrown around like a ball. You really think you want to get in a dinghy at a moment like this? But you think, maybe if we can get out of this part of the storm, I could jump on that thing and get out. But when you start doing it, so let me just say, the first part of it was, again, as we looked at it, writing it out, and the second part then being tucking under. Can I say the third part is to pull it in? We start pulling it in. Well, how does that look? Well, at this point, I start to be taking an inventory of what life looks like. And I ask, well, what things are a little loose at this moment? 
The storm is one, by the way, that it isn't like I can just kind of write it out at this moment because it seems like it just keeps getting worse. At this particular point, I realize I actually might have to do something about it. I mean, the idea of kind of making a blame and tucking it under, I still am not doing anything about it. Think about it, at least anything to actually help solve the problem. I'm just kind of going, well, I'm just going to call it little. But somewhere down the line, it keeps smacking me in the face. And as it does, I'm like, okay, all right, I got to do something. What do I need to pull in? I start looking for my escape routes. I start to isolate away from other people and insulate myself because I don't want people to realize that at this moment I'm struggling. And you know what the most amazing thing is? Imagine we, were in, we are in a spiritual hospital here and the moment we stop doing spiritually well, we leave. Is that weird to you? Because it is to me. But it's like, man, I, I don't, I don't want to be around Christians right now. I thought you were one. Well, I am, but... They're going to go like, hallelujah, and I'm going to totally feel like a hypocrite if I say hallelujah too. I don't want to go where there's actually people that can love on me and pray for me and encourage me and challenge me. I'm going to go crawl into my cave and die in Christ. How goofy, but you know what? Let's be honest. How many of us are like that? You know what's really sad? We think to ourselves, well, you know what? I'll get through this. I'll, be, I'll get better on the other side. Then I'll come back to church. But here's the crazy part. You've been gone so long, you don't want to go back because you're afraid people are going to say, where you been? And you have to tell them, well, do I lie? Or do I say, well, I'm struggling, but I'm better now. Did you see how that works? Now, we are familiar, can I just say, one of the beautiful things about England is I got to learn a little bit more about a fox. Now, they, they're all over the place here. I mean, and you see guts strewn out across the street. By the way, I'm, I, pardon me for saying, but I am really amazed at how long cat guts are because they've, they've covered busy streets. No, sorry. But, and you could just tell a, a fox has been here. Now, even on the coldest nights, pray for my wife. Personally, me, I like the window open. Well, we don't normally because my wife would die. But, um, but on those nights where we, you know, she's up for a while, I have the window open for a little bit. And you can hear the foxes outside. And they make that really bizarre noise, almost like a possessed baby. You know what I mean? It's a very bizarre noise. Somewhere between a chicken and a baby cry. And a, I'm not really... It's unique, I suppose. Why do they make that noise? Have, you, have any of you heard that noise other than me? Okay. Why do you think they make that noise? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, it's, it's, it's a, a noise that actually calls other animals out in curiosity. It makes this noise. And of course, cats are all independent, right? They're like, uh, uh, ooh, what was that? I'm going to go check that out. Uh, 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 uh. Ah! And then it gets eaten and cats go, right? And it's like, what happened is this. And then, by the way, foxes do that with a lot of animals. And there are certain animals that they do that. And the whole idea of it is they lure it out so that the animal can be, listen, listen, separated from the others, because if you can separate it, you can kill it. And I don't know, if, I mean, I don't know about you, but as a boy, I used to love watching those nature programs. And of course, you know, there's ones of like the, you know, the, the let's, let's take a look at the spotted snail. I'm like, let's see something, kill something. And so, pardon me, but, you know, as a boy, and you'd watch those things, and you watch the lion, and the lion doesn't just go and attack the whole thing. It chases, it scares, and it roars, so it can scare one thing out, and if it can scare that one out, that's dinner. It could look and go, that's the buffet line, but I've got to fight all of them. That one's on its own. Piece of cake. I understand why Peter would say that the, the enemy 
runs around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour? Here's the most amazing thing. Do you realize who your shepherd is? Do you realize who that is? The undefeated heavyweight champion of the universe. Who created all those things that would stand against you. That are going to bow to him, according to scripture, every knee is going to bow. Satan's got a knee, he's going to bow. And the reason I say that is, is that our entire spiritual battle is going to be whether we want to stay in the lap of God where we belong according to Ephesians 2, or jump out and do something on our own. And we think, don't worry, Lord, you wait here, which, by the way, doesn't happen. You wait here, I'm going to go chase after a little bit of this, but I'll come back and get forgiveness by the end of the night. And you can understand how the Lord will be well, like, I'll let you get mangled a little bit. You're like, I thought you loved me. And God's like, you know what? If this is what it takes for you to stay here, I'm good with it. And we want to start tucking it under. But after we start tucking it under, we get to that point where we're like, man, I'm going to have to start pulling it in. I'm going to actually have to start thinking, what do I need to do? I actually am going to have to. Well, I hate the word. I'm going to have to try. Yeah, that's the word. Anyways, so, and I get to this and I realize here, it's like we're looking at enough, like you've got these guys and they're like, well, we're going to have to, we're going to have to t- kind of pull in our escape route to make sure that we're, if, when we need it, we're going to get it. And that's, we're halfway there. And you know what's really sad? Most of the time, it works. You know, at this point, I put a little effort into it. We're done. There are some storms that ain't going to work that way. And the Lord, in His perfect love, will allow you to see what happens when you do put a little effort into it. Because the Lord would actually like you to put a little effort in your walk with Him. Now, I'm not telling you you earn anything. You never earn anything with God. It's all by grace. But He still wants you to walk with Him. He still wants you to read. But you don't read because you're going to get some kind of great little tick boxes, you know, boxes ticked that God's going to give you little stars. I read God's Word, to be honest, because I'm in love with the author, and I want to know him better. Interesting, because I actually learn about me more, too, when I read it. It is an autobiographical love story, and I'm actually in it as the object of the love. Think about that. It means I'm reading about the person who wrote about how they're deeply perfectly, irreversibly in love, and somewhere about page one, I realized I was the one they loved. How do I not want to read the rest of it? But man, if I read it for other reasons and then say, hey, God, reward me, you will be upset when a trial does come and you feel like you're, being, you're behaving. You're like, come on, God, I'm reading, I'm memorizing, I got this handled, and I got this laid down, and then a trial, and you're like, God, this should be a time when I should like stumble upon a check. You know, my car can't break down. We certainly can't close that line. You know, it's like, wait a minute, how did I not get that job? I've been serving you. God's like, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot you worked for me. I thought he adopted us, and all of a sudden. He gets us back to the place where we read because we love him. We pray because we just want to hang out with him. We don't pray because really all of it is like, dear Santa, I mean, God, in Jesus' name, poof, all I want to make it happen. And at this point, I start looking, going, okay, I need to try. And God's like, well, what would happen, though, if you did put some effort into this? Like, you say, well, I really don't have time to, to read or pray. I'm so busy, and God goes, I can handle that. I can make you really sick. And I'm like, but God, I don't want that. 
God's like, the most important thing to me is your relationship with me. And understand, that governs every decision God makes. Do you realize that? Every decision. You know what's strange? For some people, bringing you a partner, a spouse, will bring you closer to the Lord in weakness. Some of you bringing you one will put them in competition. God knows. Now, I'm not telling you if you're single, God's punishing you. I'm certainly not saying that. I am saying this. God does not want competition. And you know, can I just say this? It is not a character flaw for God to be jealous. You're only jealous of what you want. Personally, I don't like coffee. It tastes like dirt to me. Now, if you like coffee, I'm not telling you you're going to hell for it. I'm not even telling you you're a lesser Christian. I like tea. I thought I came to this country and I thought, this is a perfect country to come to for tea. I might as well go gone to China. This is a country where there's a Starbucks on every corner now, right? It's like, go to the Starbucks, go to the second Starbucks, take a left at the Starbucks, a right at the Starbucks, and then when you get to the Costa, take a right at Nero Cafe. Nero. I'm like, well, where's the tea places? Oh, they're on Oxford Street for the tourists. Oh. And this is the only reason I say that. Here's the point of it. If Rodrigue Walk, just all of a sudden came to his mailbox and he opened up this thing and said, congratulations, you've gotten free coffee for the rest of your life. Actually, Rodrigo's a tea changer too, so we're all right with that. I wouldn't be jealous. I wouldn't go, oh, man. I'd be like, good on you. It wouldn't be my thing. And understand, we don't read that God is jealous of anything but you. Is the only thing he wants. You say, well, God's jealous of my whatever. It's like, no, that's what's in competition. God's jealous of you. That's the problem. And sometimes that thing is not bad. It's just what you're doing with it. A hammer's not a bad thing until you hit someone with it. And you're like, you know, my family's not a bad thing until I make them replace God in my heart. You're not a bad thing. You're a wonderful thing until I try to get my value from you instead of from the Lord. But the moment I get everything I need from Him, which is everything, by the way, I say I serve you out of the overflow and I can love my family like I'm supposed to. Isn't that great? Okay, follow me. So now here we are. We've tucked in our skiff. That's our escape boat. Which, by the way, will not be big enough for 276 people. Can I just say that? And notice it says then, when they had taken it on board, verse 17, they used cables to undergird the ship. This is the next thing, our number four, and it's tie it down. If I can't do it by writing it out, tucking it under, and pulling it in, now I've got to see if I can start tying it down. And there's something interesting. Read all of verse 17 with me. It says, when they had taken it on board... They used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sardis stands, they struck sail and so were driven. By the way, did you notice in this verse, fear enters? Did you notice that? All of a sudden, we got this word fearing we haven't had up to this point. We've kind of looked and said, it's really not that big of a deal. I'll kind of tuck it under. Oh, I might have to do something about it. But it's gotten big enough now where I realize even a little effort isn't going to fix it. And now I'm going to start getting a little bit scared. It makes sense that it would be here, doesn't it? 
And all of a sudden, notice though, still, all attention is still on saving the ship. And some people will die with that ship. We've been in places down on the coast where they have beautiful commemorations for the cellist that died on the Titanic because he was still playing when the ship went down. And my first thought is, I bet that thing floats. That's my first thought. You can buy another cello and play longer when you live. But that's just me. And I realize when we start tying it down, all of a sudden, I'm starting to realize I don't have control. I start to realize, wow, even in trying, putting a little effort in it, it isn't fixing the problem. Wow, this, this is bigger than I can actually handle. And that's where fear comes in. Now understand, when I was first in university, I, one of my roommates, the roommate that I had at that time, uh, we were on the music floor, so everyone was a little bit odd, very, very creative, and often quite brilliant. One of those individuals that, that was my roommate, he was really gifted at chess, the game. And what we would do is, is, is he would, you know, he was, from the beginning, he would always do that kind of, he didn't even have a beard, but he'd do this anyways, you know? All right. And I kind of watch him do that, and I thought, man, his chin's going to get raw. He keeps doing it. And I watch this. My first five moves were random, and it used to just drive him mental because he was trying to figure out what I was doing. I didn't even know what I was doing, right? I'd just go, and I'd make it, you know, and I'd go like this, just to bother, right? And after five moves, then I'd kind of look and go, hmm, let's see what mess I've gotten myself into, and then try to figure out how to win with whatever it was. And after I had gotten saved, the Lord brought me back to that in my mind and said, you realize you live so much of your life that way. You're careless and reckless and just do whatever and kind of go with the flow and whatever. And then somewhere you kind of figure you can charm or wit or plan or scheme your way out of it. So you kind of throw yourself in it. And then somewhere you kind of like come to and go, now let's see how to get out of this. Now can I ask you, is there anyone other than me that's like that? Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Some of you are just too proud to tell me. <laughs> but let's be honest. And the, and the only reason I say that is, is that some people out there, you, you know, all of a sudden you start putting, like, you put a little form of effort into it, and it doesn't happen, and you're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. This has always worked. What's going on here? And that would be a place where you get really uneasy, because, well, this is new territory now but I'm still trying to save the ship. At this point, I still think that I can actually make it out of this thing unchanged. Ship will be okay. Things will be okay. We'll go back. And what we'll have in the end of this is one of those memories where we look and go, that was really something, huh? And that's it. So what does it look like to undergird the ship? By the way, coming from a fishing community where we came from before this, Morro Bay, you can learn a lot about fishermen. You learn that they can handle smell because, boy, some of that stuff doesn't smell good. And you start asking them what you do in storms. And when you hear about ribbing a ship, it's still something they do. They just use steel cables. You take, you know, understand the whole ship's going like this. And if the whole ship is doing this, think about how many of you are going to be happy with doing that for two weeks. Any of you still think you're going to keep your lunch? And while all of this is happening, you've got fishermen who this is what they're trained to do. Now, while this is happening, what becomes evident is the ship might actually fall apart. The reality of that starts to sink in, that things are going to start changing. Wait a minute. I'm actually going to come out of this thing a little 
different than I entered in. Which, by the way, is what God intends. By the time this is done, every one of them will be Paul's audience. And he didn't have, apparently they didn't listen to him in the beginning, but they're going to listen to him when they're done. Now, this is what it took to get there. So what do we do? We don't, so you can't just send frogmen. We can't say, Annie, you look like a good swimmer. Why don't you grab an end of the cable, swim under the boat, get to the other side and throw it up. Think about that. Especially you don't use words like throw it up at a point like this. Anyways, but if you do that, think about it. The whole thing's rocking like this. You've got waves that are just giant waves. That's not the way you handle this. You, got, you take these giant ropes and you have two people on the front of the ship and you throw it over. And as it starts to move its way under, you don't have two people kind of pushing it because which one of you thinks you're going to be able to stand on the edge of a ship while it's doing this and think you're going to make it through? So all of us are braced. We're all braced. We have two lines of this. And if there are two lines, the two people here throw it over and then they pull it over to the next people. They grab it. They pull it over to the next people. And as they pull it over, the people on both sides of them are holding on to them so they don't fall off. Do you get it? This becomes a group effort at this point to just keep the ship from sinking. And then you get the next rope. And the next rope. And you start tying it in. All right, start tying it in. And in a moment like this, all right, now what do I have to, what do I have to start yanking in? What do I have to really, wait a minute. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave to it. And I don't know what it's like. Have you ever been there where you're like, God, could you just change me so that I never get caught? And I just thought, you know, wake up and never want this again. He's like, I want to warn you. You could submit yourself to that thing or call in for help. But sooner or later, if you're going to keep playing with something like that, you're going to need help. Well, with that in mind, we're undergirding the ship and we're fearing now that we're going to be. And notice, by the way, we are still driven by the storm. Did you notice that at the end of verse 17? Even in the midst of this, we cannot... Here's the sad part. We can't get out of the storm. At this point, it becomes very evident. We are not steering through the storm. The storm is steering us. So what do we do next? Only two away. Verse 19. Actually, verse 18. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed. Do you know what that means? It means you've been battered. You've been battered back and forth, back and forth to your bloody, till bones are broken. Bjorn has a concussion. Allie, she, both her legs are broken, but we kind of expected that. You know, Delek, she's in bad shape. Peter, he's doing okay for the moment, but he's been thrown up for three days. It's still not good. And we've been at it now. And you get to the point where you're just... Well, in the fighting world, there's a term called punch drunk. And the idea of that is you've been hit so hard so many times, it's just like being intoxicated. You can't think straight. You can't stand straight. You can't talk well. You're punch drunk in the midst of this. You can't, you can't gather your resources at a moment like this and think your way through it 
Smile your way through it. Fight your way through it. At this point, everything starts to shift. And it's no longer about saving the ship. At this point, it's just about staying alive. At this point, you stop being as concerned about who's going to know. At this point, you stop trying to save faith because that's part of the ship. At this point, you stop telling people you're okay because there is no way you're going to be able to hide it. You're beat too hard. It's made its way to your face. And at that point when people say, how are you doing? And they see that you're using every ounce of energy left in you to dam up the tears and they walk away before that explodes on them, you know you're in trouble. But here's the good news. The Lord is always bigger. And here's the thing, friends. Can I just say this politely? I think that the Lord gets really tired of us putting contingencies on our surrender. In the middle of the storm, in the middle of it, somewhere in the beginning of it, it's like, God, I will give you it all, but please don't touch. God, I'll give it all, but please don't change. God, I'll give it all, but don't let that person not like me. Don't let this relationship not work out, God. And there's like, there's this but. And you know, sometimes the Lord will go, I'll wait. And that sounds so cruel until you realize He does this because He loves us and He just doesn't want to compete anymore with that thing. Anytime, and I, I, if I can put it plainly, anytime you tell God, hands off this, it's become an idol. It's just that simple. Hands off this. Hands off my looks. Hands off my talent. Hands off my brains. Hands off my friends. Hands off my party lifestyle. Hands off my choice in sexual relations. Hands off my, my, my self-proclaimed piety. Hands off my ministry. Hands off the moment, whatever it is, you tell God. Now, you may not mentally say those words because you know that's not right. So you'll kind of figure out a polite way to say something, but God sees through it. And I can see the Lord going, you're just not broken enough. Have you seen someone you really want to come know the Lord? And something happens and you go, that's going to do it. That's got to do it. And then they kind of kind of repent, like that could happen. But then the next day they're back where they were and it sounds like Pharaoh going, oh, pray for me this one time. And does it frustrate you? Does it drive you mental and go, oh, God, what's wrong with this fool? And then all of a sudden the Lord's like, they're just not broken enough. Broken enough. Can I tell you where the brokenness really needs to happen? This is me. This is me. And I'm doing this. 
And God says, get your hands off of you. And you're like, God, I love you, but don't let me let go of this. God, and God's like, ow, oh, this hurts, and it's hard to do this. And God says, the moment you break your grip on you, you're going to let me love you like I want to. And some of us will never let go. Never, never let go. And when that happens, we die with the ship, and then we tell people God failed. Isn't that sad? Have you heard the story about the person that in the middle of the, this um, group of climbers, and I believe it was at Half Dome, which is, by the way, in Yosemite in California, and one had fallen off the cliff. And as he had fallen off the cliff, they brought a rope to him and actually had broken his leg. But they kind of wrapped it in this sort of a harness situation and started lowering him. But as they started lowering him, remember, it's pitch black, there are people that were experienced rescue guides there, experienced in SNR, search and rescue. And as they started letting down the rope, what became evident is the rope wasn't long enough. wasn't long enough for the person to actually touch the ground. But the experienced search and rescue guys knew how much, how deep the distance was to the ground. Are you with me on this? But it's pitch black. Now, this person had suffered the kind of internal wounds that they needed medical help. And as they're letting this individual down, there gets a point where the person has to release themselves from their harness so they could drop down to the ground. And there at that point, then, they can call in help. Lo and behold, they're screaming from the top, let go, let go. And the next morning, there was this individual dead with internal bleeding three feet from the ground below him because they couldn't see the ground, but they couldn't trust the rescuers to tell him all they had to do was let go and they could have lived through it. And no wonder how many of us that could be our story if we're not careful. And we're tying it down and we're saying, look, it don't be look at I'm still cool. What would happen if people knew that a pastor was human or a Christian was human? And here's the most amazing part. And I'm just hypothetically, Andrew starts sharing with an individual. As he starts sharing with an individual, and we're going to say he, he shares with somebody named Barsha hypothetically. And he shares with Barsha, he says, look at Jesus forgives. He takes people right where they're at. He's patient with them and he loves the sinner. Barsha says, well, that's interesting information. The next day, the two of them bump into each other. But Randrew is in a really bad way. And he says a couple stupid things and he's really kind of angry. And some guy kind of walks in front of him and he Hits him in the back of the head, hypothetically. And then, he is, and then he comes to, after that fleshly outburst of wrath, and he comes back and he sits in his place, and you know what he says? I'll never be able to share with that girl again. And he uses those three words we use. I blew my witness, right? Here's the most amazing thing. What he told her was, God takes the sinner the way he is. He's patient with him and he forgives. Do you realize he had the opportunity to demonstrate that? Now, I'm not saying go blow it so you can demonstrate that. Don't worry. You're human enough that'll happen on its own. And she's kind of like, whatever happened to Andrew? Oh, he's too busy trying to figure out how to be perfect in front of you again. But look at 
The only perfect person is Jesus, and he imputed upon us his perfection at the cross when he died for your sin and my sin. And then he said, can we swap your guilt for my innocence? Just give me permission. Just give me permission, because the moment you say yes, we'll swap. I'll take your guilt to the cross, and then we can be together for the rest of eternity, starting right now. And then somewhere down the line, we tell people, God doesn't take perfect people because he's the only perfect one, but we're still trying to be perfect in front of people. Isn't that weird? So when we hit a trial like this and things start happening, we're like, well, man, I can't let people know that I'm actually in a storm. You know what's amazing? It's those moments people look the closest, don't they? Because when we tell people that he gives us joy, now remember, happiness is circumstantial, but joy on the other hand, joy happens when you have nothing to be happy about. That's the only time when people will see real joy. Think about it. And nobody, any of you want to volunteer for that, where you have nothing circumstantially to be happy about? But it's those moments people go and you, you watch them. You know, it's like living by the beach. It's like seagulls. They, if you have a bag of crisps, they just like, Right? And you're like, you're going, through a, you're going through a storm, and it's like people that wouldn't go near you are now like... <laughs> right? And you know it. And the reason is because they want to really... They want to see if you really have what you said you had. Well, follow me. We're almost done. Now, with that in mind, where does this end? At this point, we're letting it go. Look at verse 18 and 19 again. We're throwing things overboard. We're trying to save the ship, but we're trying to save the ship from... We kind of think if the ship sinks, so do we. And now we're kind of getting involved in it. And at this point, it becomes very evident, I will never be the same again. The strange thing is, it's hard to think at this moment, I'm actually going to be better because of this. And this is Paul who already told the Corinthians he had already been in a handful of uh, shipwrecks. And the guy's like a Jonah, only worse. Finally, verse 20 says, Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest beat on us. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. And I wonder what that would be like for Paul. Think about that struggle from Paul's perspective two years ago. Two years ago, Jesus said you're going to Rome. Two years ago. It's a long time. Think about where you were two years ago. We had just gotten here two years ago. Is that weird to think? Two years ago, Jesus said, don't worry, you're going. At this moment, there is nothing in your circumstances, nothing that actually is going to say, yeah, I bet that promise is going to come true. And Jesus says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And whoever is in Christ, if you take my word, you'll be free. And whoever is in Christ is free. And free indeed, he says. And I don't feel so free. We're more than conquerors in him that loved us. That's a promise. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And then there's that circumstance. I think, oh, no. He who began that good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Faithful to complete it when? Maybe he'll complete it by killing me. Free indeed. I'm still dealing with this bondage. There's no way that I feel free. And then I don't want to go to church and have people sing about freedom and I, I'm still dealing with this thing. And there's a part of you that knows 
But if that's God's promise, something's not right. Or is it just that he knows? He knows when. Well, why doesn't he just do it all once? And there I am. Because then two weeks from now when I ask Nathaniel about what kind of what God's doing in his life, he'll have to tell me about two weeks ago. God loves to be the God that's still loving you now. Do you get that? Oh man, I love the fact he's like that. Although I'd love for him to change everything bad about me instantly. But even with the Israelites, when he says, look at when you take your promised land, I'm not going to give it to you all at once. You're not even fruitful enough for that. It'll become barren and you'll never appreciate it. I'll give it to you part by part. Then you'll celebrate every victory with me. And that's what God wants. So finally you're like, all right, forget it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not me. Right? Maybe, maybe Peter. Maybe David. Okay, David will, pro- David will probably be like, get there. Because we don't know what David's struggling with. You know, Lucas, I mean, give him a couple of years, man. That guy's just going to be perfect in Christ. Not me. I'll always have this thing. You get there? You know what? No wonder why the world's confused. We are. And Jesus said, Jesus said that I've come that you would have life literally above and beyond what you can contain more abundantly. I don't feel like this is abundant life right now. It's like, well, then where are you looking? Are you surrendering to the storm? Are you surrendering to the one that Psalm says, he calms the waves of the storm so they're still? And you're like, but it doesn't say when. That's the problem, right? Can I just say, in Zephaniah 3.17, when it talks about the Lord rejoicing over you, that second statement is, he will quiet you with his love. Notice he doesn't say he will quiet everything around you because he loves you. Sometimes he'll still the storm. Sometimes he'll quiet the storm. Sometimes he'll just quiet the child in it. Because when the world sees a quiet child in the storm, and Isaiah says he promises to keep you in perfect peace, perfect peace, not just pretty good peace, perfect peace, when your mind is stayed on him. When your mind stayed on him. Now, if I wasn't in a storm, it'd be pretty easy to keep my mind stayed on him. Then it's just an issue of spiritual ADD. It's in the storm I want to look at the waves. You know what I've learned? Even the biggest waves can be unintimidating if you know where you belong. Hey, I don't know if you heard about this and we're just about done. How high do you think that is, the top of the roof there? Give me a good guess. Two stories, three stories? Five stories? What do you think? What's your, what's your guess? Four stories? Okay, four. Okay, so let's, let's just be generous and say that's five stories. Five stories tall. In Portugal last week, there was a gentleman who was towed out on a, on a wave on a board, on a surfboard. Rode the largest wave in history that they're aware of that was surfed. Comfortably, 
twice that size. Comfortably twice that size. Now, in order for you to surf a wave half that size, you have to be able to hold your breath for three and a half minutes. Half that size. Which one of you, if you saw a wave that size, says, I'm dead. I'm dead. This guy goes, surfs up. You think that guy's just out of it. You know what the crazy thing is? That same wave that could scare the living daylights out of you was something he looked at and said, I'm not afraid of that. Because somehow he just knew he could stay on top of it. And by the way, that guy, if you watch Biggest and Worst Wipeouts, he's in almost every reel. He knows what it's like to get pitched. When you have to get dropped down in something like that, if you don't drop down at the right time, you get thrown all the way down to Brixton. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you land on. Don't think water's soft at a moment like that. It's like getting run over by ice trucks. There's nothing fun about it. And here's my point. If there should be anyone that should be able to handle the biggest storms, it should be us. And we would cower if it started to swell the size of those doors. Because we're like, God, I don't want that. You're like, but I want your mom saved. I want your neighbor saved. I want your friend saved. I want your boss saved. But for that to happen, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, it may take something they couldn't live through that you did. The question is, could I honestly, not theoretically and heroically in my head, but could I honestly love them enough that I'd be willing to submit myself to it if the Lord would want me there? You know what? I can tell you this. I would rather die than watch my girls not walk with the Lord. But it wouldn't be like I could instantly, I would not instantly volunteer if God says, this is what it's going to take. You're going to have to lose your arm. You're going to have to go through a life-threatening this. You're going to have to watch this. You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to experience this. And I think, it wouldn't be like my first response. Like, yeah, 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 hook me up. I'd be like, Come on, let me think about that. Holy Spirit, please give me the power to say yes because I know I'm supposed to. You get it? If that's what it would take, because my honest answer would be, like Jesus, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from before me. And that brings us to where we close this. When Jesus said, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from before me. And that cup was the cup of our condemnation, which Jesus willingly took but with one very clear declaration, and that is, there's not another option. What loving father would send his son to the cross but still let you rub the belly of a big fat guy and that's okay? Or let you go kill some people or pray five times and make your trip to, make your hajj and that would be okay? Now, I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm trying to be honest. Would you, could you honestly worship a father that would, when his son begged him, Daddy, Daddy, please, please, that's the only way to save... Nathaniel, if the only way to save Peter is to go to the cross, I love him that much. But if he could get there any other way, please don't send me. But if that's the only way, not my will, yours be done. That's how precious you are to him. That's how precious you are to him. That he'd rather die than live without you. Do you get it? But beloved, please hear me. 
There isn't another way. Please, please, please don't insult the grace of God to say Jesus plus. Like he's a salad bar. I'll take a little forgiveness, but I'll take a little of that. It's Jesus as Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And tonight I'd like to give you a choice. Tonight, if you're in the storm, I'm here to say, can I actually walk with you a little bit in it? Are there other people that could walk with you for a minute? Say, can we pray together? Can we walk together? Because, man, God doesn't want you to do this alone. And he won't, you can't do it alone anyways if you've given your life to Christ because he lives inside of you. But he's called family together. Not to be soft shoulders and just cry with you. Sometimes it is to cry with you, but sometimes that's to say, hey, can we surrender together? Can we hand it over together? Now, at the end of it all, the last thing was give it up. But I don't give it up to the storm. I give it up to the storm calmer or to the child calmer in the storm. But in the end of it all, I don't just give up thinking that the boat's going to be okay. My entire life is going to be ravished, strangely enough, for the better. And if you haven't accepted that gift of Jesus Christ tonight, and maybe you're kind of banking on another option, being a good person, your good outweighing your bad, could you imagine the Father sending Jesus to die on the cross and then saying, but as long as your good outweighs your bad, we're dead in our trespasses and sin, beloved. But Jesus died that death. That's not the end of the story. He rose again. And it's the new life he offers us in him. If you have accepted Christ, that gift, can we pray tonight that God would give us his heart, first for the Father, and second for his children, for the world that he so loved, that he gave it all, Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you. I know that this isn't an easy message because, um, well, because it's pretty darn personal. But you wouldn't have it any other way. We recognize tonight, Lord, that maybe some people right now, they are trying to write it out. It's a little bit of this, it's a little of that. And they're kind of tucking it under and making it seem like it's not that big of a deal. Jesus, you told us that if we surrender, if we start jumping into sin, we become slaves to it. Now granted, I know that not every storm is because of our sin, but I also know that you don't desire for us to live in it anymore. And so tonight I just pray right now for every person here, myself included, God, that there would be nothing we'd be dabbling in, sniffing around. I know this, if we don't like heights, we shouldn't be playing around the cliff. If we don't like to get burned, we shouldn't be hanging around the fire. And yet, Lord, somehow we convince ourselves sometimes that getting nearing sin isn't a problem. Why would we want to be near that which we know is to our danger, to our detriment? So I pray tonight for my brothers and myself, my sisters and myself. God, please. 
Give us such a heart that is already so completely surrendered to you in every way that there be no idols, not a single idol, not what we, what we look like, not what we think like, not what we capture our identity as, not things that we think are dockets of our talents or strengths, but Lord God, please, that we find our value in you at the cross. And Lord God, in that we celebrate the God who rejoices over us with singing. And I pray for every person right now that is in the thick of the storm. Whatever stage it's at, from pulling it in to tying it down, handing it over to giving it up. Lord, that tonight there would be this peace in the storm. And whether you choose to calm the storm right today, tonight, right now, or whether it be you just choose to be our strength through it. I thank you that when Peter walked on water, you didn't calm the storm first. He just went overboard in it. I pray for those among us who have cancer. Needless to say, my first thought would be God heal them, but Lord, above and beyond... I'm so humbled by their desire to be seen among others so they can see how you are their strength through that storm. And God, if you in your crazy honor choose to bring us through whatever storm that you choose, give us the kind of courage your Holy Spirit and discipline to keep our eyes on you and and faith that would trust you in the darkest of nights because you're still the light of the world. That we could say, even as Job, even if he slay me, I'll praise him. And to say as those three boys before the fire, God is able to save us from this, but even if he doesn't, we are not going to bow. Because I know the world's looking for people like that. And for those who, in the strangest way, have the honor of being that, bless them. And Lord, please, in comparison Keep us from being sissies who want to feel like we're gutted because we got a paper cut or a splinter in comparison. Oh God, please make us people who are genuinely stout-hearted in you. And right now in this room, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, yet perhaps you heard things tonight that are offensive. The issue is not whether it's offensive. The issue is whether or not it's true. If it's true, what are you going to do about it? And I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, I'm going to invite you to say, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let this prayer be my prayer. Let those words be my words. And here it is. God, I confess to you, I am not perfect. I am flawed. I am a sinner. I am guilty in and of myself, but you love me anyways. 
And tonight you've made clear that you sent your perfect, sinless, spotless Son to die on the cross to pay for all of my filth and my guilt and my failures. In light of that, if you're really willing to trade me your innocence for my imperfection, your purity for my sludge and muck, your life for my death, I say yes. And how that same only begotten Son on the third day, just like your Scripture foretold, rose again that I could have new life. Well then, Lord, give me that new life without me giving you instructions on how you want to reinvent me. You know best. And so I surrender myself as your masterpiece in the works. Make me that which you intend and make me confident that is the best thing I could ever be. As I surrender myself to my Creator now, confessing Jesus as my ransom, my Savior, and as my Lord, I am yours. Adopt me now. I am yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.